welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a prime ministerial library and museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. And today we are speaking to Dr. Scott Prasser. He's worked over the years in federal and state governments in senior research and policy roles. And that is actually where I first met him when he worked for the education minister at the time, Christopher Pine. He holds undergraduate and postgraduate qualifications from the universities of Queensland and Griffith. And he has just written a new book on royal commissions and public inquiries in Australia, which is what we're going to talk about today. So welcome, Scott. G'day, how are you? I am very well and very jealous of you in sunny Brisbane and in not locked down Brisbane. I am very much looking forward to uh, getting back up to Queensland when your your dear Premier lets me. Um, but Royal Commissions and Public Inquiries are a real feature of the Australian political landscape and I really would love to start a discussion today, Scott, talking about what what are these what are these things these public inquiries and royal commissions? What sort of creature of of government of um, architecture are they? Can you paint us a, a picture of the legislative underpinnings of these things that have been around? I understand since nineteen o two, we've been blessed with them. That's right. In, in, a, in public inquiries are ad hoc temporary bodies appointed by executive government with people from outside of government to give advice to government on a whole range of things. And of public inquiries, the Rolls-Royce of public inquiries are royal commissions. Royal commissions are established under statute. And one of the early acts of the new Commonwealth Parliament was the Royal Commissions Act 902. Now, so royal commissions have real powers of investigation. They can make people attend their hearings. They can make you give evidence, even if it can incriminate you. You lose your rights under when you appear before a Royal Commission. A Royal Commission can seize documents. It can phone tap. So they're very powerful bodies. But So there's Royal Commissions and there's these general public inquiries, which are just groups of people being appointed by government to give advice which have no powers, which rely on support by the fact that they've been appointed by government. They have no constitutional standing in Australian government. They're not in the constitution. They're appointed by executive government. They're a particular type of advisory body which all governments appoint to get advice. Right, and even a general member of the public could be forced to appear, could they, Scott, before a, a royal commission? You don't have to be in a particular public role, like a member of parliament, a member of the government, a public servant. It could just be the guy running the shop down the road. That's right. So 
If the Royal Commission is investigating a particular topic and think that you can give evidence to it, you don't want to give evidence to it, they'll say, we'll send someone around to bring you to the Royal Commission so you do give evidence to it. They take evidence under oath. And so if you tell lies, you can be prosecuted, all sorts of things. So Royal Commissions, they really come from star chamber type inquiries going back to the 16th century in Britain. But governments appoint these sort of bodies because, you know, governments often don't have all the expertise and also governments want to investigate an issue and show that it's independent and not being run by the government. That's why, that's where the sort of the rationale for them comes from. And that's not a modern day feature of government that, as you said, the Royal Commission Act was passed in the extremely early days of our federation by the Commonwealth Parliament in 1902. So these these have been around for an extremely long period of time. But they 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 sort of play a, a role of being, you know, kicking the can down the road to use a <laughs> use a, a tried and true um, phrase. It it's a way of a government maybe deflecting attention from a tricky situation and and deferring a decision to uh, a panel of experts. It might be a way of trying to just smother a really tricky issue or or show that they're doing something even though doing something about the problem might be politically incredibly difficult. That's right. So there's two basic reasons. One, it could be a government really wants to know uh, how to tackle an issue or they really want a problem investigated, or they really want to get at corruption, or they really want to know why a bridge collapsed or why an accident occurred or bushfires, or they may want to get some expert advice on education or television or or pensions. But you're right, um, they also are politically expedient reasons why governments appoint inquiries. And I'm sure you know and your listeners know that Governments don't always know what they're doing um, and they often need time to try and uh, work out what step to take. So a Royal Commission or a public inquiry can fill up the space for a while while they work out what to do or they can kick the can down the road to maybe the the inquiry will report after the election and after the election it's a new ball game, and so on. So you'll find sometimes governments appoint inquiries just before an election or a couple of months before an election and hope that after the election, if they've won, the issue will go away or they can say they've appointed inquiry. So it can be activity filling up space, if you, if you like. Someone once wrote that royal commissions are not so much for digging up the truth as for digging it in. And I thought that's, a, that's always a great, a great quote from a, a, an English uh, person on that issue. Right, so there... The, the phenomenon of royal commissions isn't limited to just Australia. It's it's across the Commonwealth and in, in the UK and in other Commonwealth countries, denoting the royal aspect of it, I guess. That's right. Look, the first royal commission is considered to be when William the Conqueror, after he conquered uh, England, uh, not Scotland, England, uh, wanted to know, well, what did he actually conquer? What did he actually own? And he set up a, some royal commissioners who went around and held hearings all throughout England about who owned what property, how many cows they had, how many servants they had, all those sort of things. And this was compiled into what was called the Domesday Book, if you like. And this was regarded as the first royal commission held in 
1068. It went on. It was quite a serious, serious uh, thing. It was a, it's a great record of of who owned what. And once he worked out who owned what, he could work out where he could what he could take from different people to give to other people with what the game was all about. So in 1068, you didn't have huge government departments and filled with bureaucrats. In 2021, Australia's been a federation for for 120 years. We have big government departments filled with bureaucrats who could be investigating why the bridge collapsed or, or what went wrong in a certain sector of the economy or society. Think of the Royal Commissions we've had over the last few years into aged care, um, currently into disability, obviously into the banking, financial services sector, collapse of HIH, the insurance company. So, I mean, we have thousands upon thousands of government bureaucrats who could look into these issues. Why is it that governments call a Royal Commission and then have to set up a, obviously a temporary bureaucracy around that group of that usually a, a judge and other lawyers conducting the inquiry. But why is it is it that sense of impartiality? Yeah, we don't trust government. Essentially, we don't trust government. So, And we don't, we trust government probably less. So the whole essence of public inquiries is that they're public, that their terms of reference are public, their membership are from people from outside of government. Their processes are public. You know, they're public hearings. Their report is public. Their evidence on which they made the report is public. They're, they're sort of uh, naked uh, out there for all, for all to see. And they're at arm's length from, from government. And when there's a controversial issue, whether it's about some corruption or a, a disaster, calamitous disaster, or there's some policy problem, we prefer, it's good to get the independent and often expert advice on an issue rather than just rely on government. Now, you're quite correct. There's lots of competency inside government, but we don't trust the public service these days because the public service has become increasingly politicised around Australia. So governments resort to the what I call the institution of last resort, that is a public inquiry or royal commission to investigate problems. But it feels like less and less it's the um, it's the institution of the last resort. It seems like it's almost a default reaction to a tricky issue is to call a public inquiry or a royal commission. I wonder then, Scott, what so we can you, you've explained the benefits, I guess, of of these rural commissions and public inquiries. They're independent, they're transparent, and open in terms of their inquiries are public. Their reporting is public. The decision making behind it is public. There is a real sense of of um, an ability for the public and the media to scrutinise every step of the the evidence gathering and decision making of a of a public inquiry or royal commission. But what are the drawbacks of of these creatures of public inquiry? The non public servant approach. What well, there there are significant draw, drawbacks, aren't there? Yes, there are, and uh, inquiries can get things wrong, right? The civil liberties aspect is a problem. You know, if you were called before a Royal Commission, Georgina, and we said, oh, there's allegations about you, now this is all in the public arena, and you may be totally innocent, but it's not till three years later when the report comes out 
and we say, oh, by the way, Georgina uh, was completely innocent. In the meantime, it's been on the front pages of the Melbourne Age that you did such and such and such and such. So that's one problem. The third problem is that sometimes we have to question whether royal commissions, especially if they're run by ex-judges, as they mostly are, are really competent to give policy advice. And there's an expectation that government should follow all their recommendations. But those recommendations are made in isolation from other policy political problems like the size of the budget or the budget deficit or other priority areas. So the media gets on a bandwagon. The government should implement every recommendation of a, of a Royal Commission uh, and government sometimes stupidly agree to that when in fact they may not be suitable and government must make the decision and must make the choice of what they implement because they're the ones that go work out while other competing priorities. So sometimes Royal Commissions get momentum all of their own and if the government doesn't implement all those recommendations, they get condemned for it. When in fact, government's the one who's got to take responsibility for making choices and setting priorities about these matters. Yeah, that's that's right. And uh, you you know you often hear after a royal commission or a public inquiry, you know, the government's going to adopt all all the recommendations, and then you know a few years down the down the line, actually only some of them have been adopted because, you know, politically or or for as you say budgetary reasons, there are a whole range of broader considerations. The recommendations may not fit, and and ultimately the government is there as the elected representatives of um, the Australian public and um, and that, you know, they take advice, but they take advice from a whole range of sources, um, the public service, their internal government advisors in their offices, their, their public inquiries, royal commissions, think tanks, all that, you know, and the like. But, but you know, it's, it, it is advice and ultimately the, the decision will, will begin and end with the government and, and can condemn the government or, 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 you know, deliver the government a significant legacy. Um, Scott, in your, in your work, you look at the history of, of royal commissions in Australia and um, you, you set out, which I think is really interesting, the, the figures of each government, how many inquiries and royal commissions they held um, I noticed the Menzies government in his this was the second term of as prime minister from 49 to 66 they had five royal commissions 30 other inquiries so 35 whereas you go to the Whitlam government in just three years so we've got to you know think of this context so Menzies has in his second term 16 over 16 years and had five royal commissions and 30 other inquiries Whitlam's in for three years and he held 13 Royal Commissions and 73 other inquiries, a total of 86. I mean, quite extraordinary, although Malcolm Fraser (laughs) has a red-hot go and beats him. Uh, He had a longer term, obviously, in government. He beats him by by six in total in the end. But you you reflect on the fact that... that non-Labor governments have tended to be more hesitant towards public inquiries and royal commissions than the Labor governments of Australian history. Why do you think that is? Is there a, is there a particular reason or is it uh, just happenstance? No, it's not. I, I think uh, non-Labor governments uh, used to, maybe not now, are less, less willing to, to intervene in society, intervene in the economy, 
they're, they're a little bit more careful. So Whitlam government, uh, you know, they were in opposition for 23 years, the Labor Party, got into power, had the big platform they wanted to implement. The platform was God, in a sense. It was their Bible. And so they launched all these inquiries. Now, some were quite useful and interesting, but what happened was government got constipated. Okay, government just couldn't cope, right? You talk to public, the public service couldn't cope with all the reports. I mean, some of the inquiries took too long. Uh, we had a we had a Royal Commission to FM FM radio, which I think is ridiculous, um, quite frankly, uh, during that period. Uh, and and so I think non-Labor government. What, you know, what 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 was the Royal Commission looking at? F, FM radio being a good thing, a bad thing? <laughs> they brought a person out from British uh, Broadcasting to to chair it. Um, and that, that's one of the examples of one of their Royal Commissions they had. Why, why was established a Royal Commission? Uh, I, I can never could find out. Um, it's really, really strange. But there it is. It's, in, it's on the list. Non-Labor, non-labor governments just tend to be more careful about, and also I think non-Labor governments historically have been more trustful of the public service because they've been in power longer. You know, non-Labor governments have been in power two-thirds of the time in Australian politics. You wouldn't know that if you if you read um, political science books and so on. And so they're more trustworthy. Well, you know, Whitlam was out of power, the Labor Party was out of power for 23 years. They didn't trust They didn't trust the public service. Um, and so they stood up. Which is, is understandable. I can, I can, I, I have some sympathy for that, the the institution of the public service, that the personalities would have been so used to the liber- you know, Menzies and then Holt and and Gorton and and uh, you know they they just would have would have been very very skeptical that these public servants were ready to just fall into line by behind the government of the day that happens to be the other the other team that they've been advising the previous governments on how to how to oppose their policies so it's yeah i mean i i have some sympathy for that that level of mistrust yes um so it's those reasons um i think but also Menzies in particular had a view and his his, his greatest uh, Put down, if you like, was over the, what was called the Vernon Inquiry into the Economic Economy, which was really set up by Jack McEwen, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister, in that Country Party, and that report recommended there be a permanent advisory committee on giving advice on the economy that would release its documents publicly. And Mr. Menzies said really clearly, "Hey, we are the government; we make decisions, and we've got to take into account not just economic expert advice." but a whole range of other advice across other areas of policy. So you had that sort of reluctance to appoint too many inquiries going on. John Howard only appointed four royal commissions, quite a few inquiries during his time, but he was fairly reluctant to appoint royal commissions. And you can only say that one of them was really a political royal commission, if you like. So he was he was quite, you know, he resisted appointing royal commissions uh, quite quite frequently, Scott. You you mentioned Menzies' scepticism about inquiries. There's a, a great quote which I, I, you have sent to me in the past, but I, I think it's worth reading. Um, it's a speech for, taken from a speech that Menzies made after the Vernon inquiry into economic policy in Australia, 
And he says, no government from whatever side of the house it may come, and indeed no parliament can abdicate its own authority and responsibility for national policy. It will welcome the assistance of experts, but its tasks will take it far beyond the limits of economic expertise. Political policy in a democratic community does not depend upon purely economic considerations. No government can hand over to bodies outside the government the choice of objectives and the means of attaining them in important fields of policy, which I thought was, I mean, it's a, a, a fantastic defence of the, uh, the, the primacy of the government and, and, uh, and the, the people who elect the government in decision-making. And, you know, has there never been a, a more... Um, telling time of uh, governments run you know ru- the rule of experts over governments as uh, as the covid crisis where we have we have seen um, government bureaucrats the chief health officers around the country we have seen government bureaucrats elevated to the highest highest levels of public status they are they, you know i i I can probably name five out of six of the the chief health officers across this country without even trying. They are household names now and they are government bureaucrats, let's be honest. Most people would have no idea who the the, the secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is or the or you know, foreign affairs or or defence, but they they sure as hell know who all the chief health officers are in their states and others and federally. That's correct. Menzies would never have tolerated that behaviour in in at all. And um, I, I think you saw the New South Wales Premier last week um, emulating that very sensible approach about these matters. I mean, there is obviously a place for experts, but experts are often contradict each other, as you know. Uh, there's often a range of expertise. Look, I've been involved in education and we're still fighting out how, how, how to teach kids how to read. The evidence is overwhelming that phonics is the basics, but uh, universities don't teach it. So there we are. So it's a real, it's a real difficult issue. But Menzies, uh, I think, had a great ability to know when to appoint an inquiry. And I think, I think the two important inquiries Menzies mentioned, which weren't royal commissions, were the two inquiries he appointed into education, which really reformed education in Australia. And I think that's that's where he and he took a personal interest in this. And when he retired. In 1966, he was asked one of his achievements, and he said education was one of his achievements. And Menzies' interest in education goes back to his first uh, radio telecast back in the 1930s and his 1945 speech, and he appointed two really important inquiries that reformed university and tertiary education in this country. The legacy of those two inquiries, there was the Murray inquiry from 56 to 57, and then there was a subsequent inquiry between 61 and 65 on the Committee of the Future of Tertiary Education in Australia. The legacy of those inquiries is extraordinary for Australian universities, but for for Australian kids, for Australian people. They opened up Commonwealth funding of universities the numbers of students between 1958 and 63 rose by 50% and enrolment in science by 100% and universities increased from 1939 from 6 to 17 by 1973 i mean this was a, an enormous opening up of the tertiary sector in australia 
and of course the ability of of kids more and more kids to access a tertiary education but the but the next inquiry was was actually looking more at at not just university education but but having the ability for kids after leaving school to to undertake higher education that wasn't just a university education and and valuing that which is still to this day a, a real problem isn't it Yes, it is. Um, this is the Martin Inquiry, which basically set up what the Colleges of Advanced Education system, which I strongly support, which uh, the Dawkins and, and the Hawke government abolished and amalgamated with universities. And it was saying that, you know, not everyone is suitable for university type education. We've got to have education that is uh, oriented towards skills in the workplace and a different sort of type of uh, intellectual development. And that was the development of College of Advanced Education, which I, I've taught at. And um, I think it's a great shame that we've done away with those uh, in our system. So, you know, so we've sort of got the, you know, a group of eight univer- top universities and we've got all these other smaller universities, some trying to uh, copy them, not necessarily successfully, and they shouldn't be trying to copy them. They should be trying to do something quite different. So that was that was a great legacy that was brought in. Menzies understood and the Liberal Party understood the importance of education, but it had to be uh, relevant to uh, the workforce as well as intellectual development of individuals. Scott, why was it uh, that Menzies called those inquiries into education? Why did he not look to the public service or his – I mean, he had great ideas and, and passion and, and he was – always learning throughout his his career would would it have been too difficult for him to have brought through these rather you know, huge changes without the backing of a of a public inquiry and and the re- extensive reporting that went into that well just remember the commonwealth department of education didn't come into being until after menzies sort of retired we had a small unit inside the prime minister's department so the, the Commonwealth didn't have responsibility for education, essentially in the Constitution, uh, although Menzies had, had for a long time advocated a greater Commonwealth role in education. Uh, now, he moved the first matter of public importance in 1945 on education. And so the Commonwealth was gradually getting into it, and he thought that he would bring experts, and the, the Murray Inquiry was an expert from England, Scotland originally, and he brought in... a quite a big team of people from a right cross-section to really look at education in Australia and both these inquiries. So I think the Commonwealth Government at that time didn't have the expertise that was needed that was going to lead to a transformation of tertiary education. Uh, so that's what he did in that, in that field. He brought in people from outside, some from overseas, with uh, world-renowned reputations to give advice to the Australian Government. He took a personal interest in their appointment, he took a personal interest in terms of reference. Um, you can see that in the records. So this wasn't just set up in any old inquiry. Menzies became quite involved in, in this whole process. Was that criticised at the time, though? He'd set up a public inquiry. It's um, supposed to be independent of, of government in, in terms of its scrutiny of the, of the issues and gathering of of uh, you know, evidence in order to make their conclusions and recommendations. Was, was Menzies' close 
uh, attention and and if if not intervention ever criticised at the time? No, I don't think it's criticised. I don't think people expected, uh, just like people today don't know, uh, that he would follow through because Menzies did not just set it up. He also made sure it was implemented. As you know, the big issue about inquiries is uh, are their reports implemented? And he made sure they were implemented and they started almost immediately on a three-year program of increased funding to, to universities. So, and, and there was resistance from the Commonwealth getting involved in what was essentially a state government matter. Mendes was never a state's writer in that sense. Uh, he saw that there were certain things the Commonwealth had to do. And this is, remember, this is the beginning of, this is the, during the Cold War. There was a lot of concern about whether the West had expertise to take on the Soviets and so on. So there was a, another undercurrent uh, going on. I also think it's important to understand that the, the Murray inquiry was appointed in 1956. Menzies had just won the 1955 election, and it was really Menzies finally come, really being on top of the political scene, and that's when he starts to do other things. Before then, he had been fighting election in 55, election 54, uh, election 51, election 49. He finally got control of issues, and that's when he starts to vote attention to these other matters that you see coming into place, like education. Uh, and he saw himself, you know, Menzies was a scholarship boy from a, a modest family, moderate family from northern Victoria who won scholarships. He really valued education himself. He saw how it could transform people. Uh, and if he could become prime minister of the country and become an outstanding lawyer because of his education, not because of his class, he thought that would be good for Australia. Yes, it was a nation-building activity first and foremost, wasn't it? Uh, his investment in education, he, he saw Australia as an incredibly young country and uh, in order to progress economically, we needed a, a, a country that was educated so that people could create their own businesses or enterprises off the back of, of a high-quality education and and, uh, and high capabilities too. Do you think the 100% increase in enrolment in science that um, you saw through, through the sort of outcome of the Murray inquiry into education, was that driven by that sense, that Cold War environment that, that you saw the, the Soviet Union investing in in science and, and innovation, there was a sense that Australia and, and the West needed to keep up? Yeah, I think I think it was a factor. Uh, but also, um, you know, this was also a period of massive industrialisation going on in Australia, thanks to, you know, Jack McEwen, of course, behind that manufacturing. There was, you know, a massive awareness of the importance of manufacturing and development and agriculture, Agriculture in Australia, I mean, the CSIRO was really set up to uh, help develop innovation in agriculture. So a very big emphasis in Australian agriculture is a very scientifically driven area of the economy and still is, still very much is. If you want to know where a lot of the research is, go to agriculture. That's where you'll see it. So I think all those factors came were there uh, about Australia had to become part of, uh, uh, become a, an industrial economy as well as an agricultural economy. I'm not going to do that unless we have a, a well-educated and trained workforce. It's it's the it's the cornerstone 
of those things. So there was that attitude. Hmm. Yes, and, and for Menzies, Australia becoming an industrialised country and industri- with a strong you know, industrial um, foundation, was Australia catching up to countries like the UK, which he obviously looked to as the sort of the pinnacle of uh, of developed of you know of a developed nation, and he was very focused on on building that Australian industry um, and didn't want Australia just to be a farm, the world's farm or the world's mine. He wanted Australia to be, you know, a, the world's factory as well. Although it it's interesting to reflect, it's of course a hypothetical. What would Menzies make of um, Australian industry and manufacturing these days, or the state of it? Quite different. Um, our economy, of course, has changed dramatically. It's such a, a service-driven economy, and of course, there's the mining um, and and agriculture. But uh, but manufacturing as a proportion of our of our economic activity is mu- is much less. I wanted to pick up on the Cold War influence of the Menzies era, and of course. One of the most famous royal commissions of the of the five that Menzies called during his second term as prime minister from forty nine to sixty six, probably the most famous one is the Petrov Royal Commission, the Royal Commission on Espionage, which um, came in in nineteen fifty four until nineteen fifty five. Tell me about the legacy of the of the Petrov inquiry. Why was it so controversial? And then what were its long-term effects, Scott? Well, look, the Royal Commission was established and, you know, Mr Petrov had um, tried, was um, sought asylum in Australia. They stopped the plane leaving with Mrs Petrov and so on. And there was uh, allegations that um, some members of the press gallery there have been reports made about members of the press gallery from certain sources on, on, on the Mr. Everett staff. And there was concerns about there was espionage going on. Petrov was going to, um, the, from the Soviet embassy, was going to tell, tell all about what was going on in Australia. And so on the eve of the uh, 54 election, uh, Menzies called a royal commission, uh, appointed a royal commission which had three sitting judges from Supreme Courts from around Australia. And the opposition uh, was informed about this before the motion was put, and the motion was carried unanimously by Parliament, by the way, to appoint the Royal Commission. This wasn't it wasn't just a Menzies thing. And they even, even had special legislation passed uh, to make it really clear that this was an act which all of Parliament supported. So all of Parliament supported the Royal Commission. But... Uh, many people uh, saw the Royal Commission, especially on the Labor side, as a conspiracy. That this was set up to attack the Labor Party. The fact that some Labor Party staff members were involved in some, in some of the aspects of it. So within the Labor Party, the excuse for why they lost the 54 election, the excuse why they lost the 55 election, was because of the Petrov Royal Commission. It was... It was um, you know, playing up on the Cold War uh, communist worries and so on, which, by the way, were real worries. Let's get get a bit, bit real about that. So that's one one of the real things. So when the Royal Commission came out in 1955, um, in around October 55, there was a debate in Parliament, uh, and the leader of the opposition, Mr. Revit, 
had just informed Parliament that he had written to or telegram the Soviet Foreign Affairs Minister, Mr Molotov, to question whether there are any Russian spies in Australia. Okay, this caused an uproar. Now, if you want to read a great speech, if you want to read a really great speech, anyone who thinks Mr Menzies was um, uh, not, uh, not involved in the cut and thrust of politics, then you read Menzies' speech, reply to Evert. And this was really the, the end of Evert, in a sense, if you like. And uh, he really highlighted how Everett had completely got the Royal Everett, Everett appeared before the Royal Commission, by the way, and, had, and actually was told to, had, had to be dismissed from it at one stage. He appeared as a, as a lawyer, um, which people advised him not to do. So the, so the, the evidence has now been, been done. Robert Mann's uh, famous book, uh, worked by John Nethercote and, and Jared Henderson and everyone else, that there was no conspiracy. Menzies didn't use the Petrov Royal Commission during the 54 election campaign. Artie Fadden made a few comments, but he was told not to. Um, and it really highlighted, you know, a whole stack of problems um, about the way the ALP saw this issue. So it, it's been used as a sort of, you know, excuse of why Labor kept losing uh, in, the, in the 50s when they should have been in power, is the argument, of course. So that's... That's what the Petra Royal Commission has become such an important event. And there was a book written by Nick Whitlam, uh, Whitlam's son, uh, back in the early 70s, <clears throat> which tried to, to play up that whole issue again. And that's largely been disproved uh, over and over. What Menzies did after the report came out, he then called an early election, uh, I think in December 55. So if you want to blame him for anything, he merely took the opportunity to do the final knifing, if you like, of the opposition with, with Everett as leader. Yes, that 55 election where his, the Menzies government majority was um, substantially increased. But, I mean, Everett, had, Everett and Menzies had battled uh, this issue for, for many years. Menzies had tried to ban the Communist Party through an act of parliament and uh, the Communist Party dissolution bill, and Everett had, had what, despite despite the fact that his Labor Party had um, in the end supported the passage of the bill through parliament, he then acted on behalf of uh, one of the trade unions who had communist um, affiliations, Communist Party affiliations. He acted on behalf of that trade union in challenging the validity of that legislation in the High Court. So, giving that sense that he had some sympathy for the for the communist side, not at all saying he was a communist. He certainly was not, but he quite rightly thought that that banning a political party was um, an illiberal thing to do. But he gave that sense to the public by acting on behalf of a communist party affiliated union in the High Court challenge, and then in the subsequent year there was of course the the referendum on communism in Australia where Menzies tried to change the constitution to which would have enabled the federal government to ban the communist party and Everett campaigned no for the change to the constitution again giving that sense that he was a defender of communism fairly or unfairly and then this final final blow with the Petrov Royal Commission and uh, Menzies, Menzies making the most of it after the outcome of the Royal Commission in his uh, 
speech uh, <laughs> speech um, demolishing Evert as uh, the leader of the Labor Party, but also, of course, uh, increasing his majority in, in December 1955. What an extraordinary period in Australian politics that must have been, Scott. I wanted to just ask you to reflect now on, on why you think the number of inquiries over the years has really increased dramatically since um, the Menzies era. Um, I mean, looking at the figures you publish in your book, the Hawke-Keating era, I mean, that was a period of 12 years. There were 201 inquiries, so there were 13 royal commissions and 189 other inquiries during that period. The Howard government in power for, for... over 11 years, four Royal Commissions, 84 other inquiries, a total of 88. In, it's, uh, in terms of, of how many there were during the Menzies era, just 35 during a period of over 16 years, uh, that was a, an extraordinary increase. What, why do you think that has been the case, especially when you consider that Menzies is the longest serving prime minister his government lasted the longest of any of any of his successes and yet the number of inquiries uh, at least per on a sort of per annum basis have has gone up dramatically there must be a reason for that well it's it's because government is more involved in more and more areas of our lives i mean in my lifetime governments are involved in areas that were, were unheard of in, in my in my lifetime our demography has changed as there's, you know, families have become more fragmented and so on. And, and um, government is, is expected to fulfill lots and lots of roles um, uh, on a host, host of areas. And so they need to get uh, advice on those things. Plus, governing has become harder. As a society has become more fragmented, it's harder to get agreement on things, on what to do. And therefore, you have an inquiry and you hope that the, the independence and expertise of the inquiry will help the government be able to get certain changes or reforms done. And some of those inquiries have been very important in doing, in doing that. So I think it's a combination of government's doing more, uh, therefore it, need, it needs to get more guidance about what to do. Government needs to try and get agreement on things. It's hard, it's hard to do because society has become more divisive and fragmented and so an inquiry can help you know build 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 uh, men fences and get agreement and get consensus and so on and the, the point we were raising earlier uh the public service has become around australia more politicized you know people are appointed on contracts they're not permanent public servants so when there's a change of government there's a change of public service and certainly in my experience in Canberra, I didn't find in my six years working for federal cabinet ministers, I, I didn't find the public service political at all. I, I, there was never a leak from the education department in the six years I was involved in that department. I didn't always agree with their advice, but that's that's fine. I, I wanted to get different advice. So I think it's all those factors coming in has meant governments have, oh, we better point an inquiry, um, and that will also allow people to, people also expect to be consulted more and to be asked more for their viewpoints about things. And we've got a whole stack of lobby groups 
in Canberra, in this whole streets of them in Canberra, uh, where their job is to seek to influence government. And a public inquiry is a mechanism that allows them to make submissions, uh, meet, have hearings, have uh, discussions with an inquiry and get their input in. So the lobby groups or the interest groups love inquiries because it's a, another conduit into government, as well as knocking on ministers' doors or department doors, they can knock on the inquiry door. So it's all those factors I think are, are, are doing it. You might say uh, society's become more complex. I don't quite buy that myself. I think uh, dealing with World War II and post-World War II construction was pretty complex sort of tasks had to be involved. We've had two and a half million people come to Australia in, you know, after World War II from all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, so there's been a lot of complexity before. But I also think that people, you know, we know indicators and we suggest that governments are not as trusted as much as they, as they were before. Um, and the very fact that there's such a high turnover of prime ministers and premiers, at least in some states, uh, indicates that, well, they're not, they, they themselves don't stick around very long. And so a, a public inquiry report is what we, what we look to. So they're not going away anytime soon is the, is the conclusion to be drawn. And, of course, there's a whole industry around them. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I do question some of the ones being appointed recently where I think they are on complex social value issues and governments have given it to a, a Royal Commission on inquiry to do, uh, which I and expect them to come up with the answers. But actually, so many things in, in policy need to be resolved by politics um, and compromise and agreement. And you just can't expect a Royal Commission to solve all those um, because they're open to immense debate and, and discussion. So look, look, the Aged Care Royal Commission, you know, you know, 40 or so of the recommendations, there were disagreement between between the two commissioners. There was disagreement uh, between the senior counsel assisting and one of the commissioners. So that didn't work that well. So, um, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't try and get royal commissions or inquiries to solve political problems. Uh, in the end, the government's got to solve the political problems by arguing their case, coming up with the with the correct arguments and convincing people that this is the best way we can do this at the moment. Well, as John Howard said, politics is about the art of persuasion and uh, and that is ultimately left to the politicians and the governments to persuade one way or the other the public that their policy approach is the, is the better one. Scott Prasser, thank you so much for joining me today on Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. It has been absolutely fascinating to learn more about Royal Commissions and public inquiries in Australia, something that is such a feature of uh, Australian life uh, or has been since 1902, but um, incredibly important and influential and deserves a lot more scrutiny and reflection. And I think your book will be a welcome addition to the uh, Australian reflection on on the importance and the influence of these bodies. So thank you very much, Scott. My pleasure. The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. 
You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.